run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, welcome to Ruby Rogues. This is uh, the best Ruby podcast out there. Uh, today, I get to do the intro, so I'm super excited. And uh, on our panel today, we have Brian Hogan. Hey, how's everybody doing? <laughs> we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. You know, Eric, sometimes I wish I could be as enthusiastic as you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so excited to be here, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and our special guest today we have is Adam Cuppy, the most handsome guest we've had on this show so far. Adam, how you doing, man? Well, gee, I have to say thank you. I mean, well, wow. Well, of course, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to butter you up because I'm introing, right? You're actually <laughs> right. Totally. I, I, I'm just <laughs> average, average old Joe. I get it. That's fine. Well, it's great to be here. I'm very glad to be here. So this is exciting. Awesome. Uh, tell us a little bit, about, a little bit about yourself. Uh, so, uh, well, I mean, I guess we could go back to my origin story, but I'll just say the, give it in a nutshell. So, uh, I co-founded and operate a software consultancy. Uh, we specialize in Rails, React, also as Elixir, you know, like many other consultancies do, um, called Zeal. So that's that's my current background, we'll call that. But if I was to take an even farther step backwards, I actually started out as an actor in the early 2000s, and I worked professionally as an actor, uh, working in various regional theaters. And even to this day, I still, I would consider myself semi-professional. So I moonlight as an actor at the same time as being a software engineer and I own a business. Wow. That's definitely a full plate. So <laughs> it's you, an exciting plate. Let's just say it's like <laughs> having like fruit in one corner and like a really hefty meal in the other corner and a touch of chocolate mousse. We'll call it. Yeah. That. I think I, I think I have to surrender. I think I have to surrender, uh, you know, any pretenses that I'm busy because I think <laughs> you've, got, <laughs> you've got me beat. <laughs> yeah, so what's your favorite thing. role? What's your favorite role that you've played? Oh, man, that is I love that question because it makes me have to pick something. Thanks a lot for that. Um, oh, man, I, you know, I never had the opportunity to play the entire role, but I have to say Iago from Othello is a great role because it's very rich. The dialogue is really rich. If you're not familiar, so Iago is effectively like the manipulative bad guy. Um and not that I necessarily resonate with being the manipulative bad guy, but uh, his language is just really rich. And I think especially right now, it's really uh, that is a play, although written, you know, hundreds of years ago by William Shakespeare, uh, Othello, that is, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, it is something that's very per it, it pertains very heavily to today as far as uh just understanding how ego and all of that can very become a very perverse and polluted thing that creates a lot of the sort of racism that we're feeling and experiencing now. So I like the role because it really kind of dives into the psychology of people. Um, and it's easy to understand why somebody who on the outside can be considered so bad, uh, how you can start to understand why they would ever get there. So I think that just the way the way Shakespeare does his thing is just very exciting to me. I love that stuff a lot. And then the other role that I played recently actually wasn't role one role. It was 19 roles. So two years ago, I did a show uh, for a theater called Diversionary here in San Diego, California, where I live. And it was a show called A Civil War Christmas, which it sounds like a kitschy title, but it's actually quite intense of a show. Um, 
And in that, I played 19 different characters over the course of two hours, uh, ranging from uh, generals to a horse. So it was the whole gamut of things. Yeah. How how did you keep them straight? Uh, You know, it's actually kind of a, a, I would call it a relatively simple trick. And what it starts with is it starts with figuring out what is that one physicalization that you can really kind of anchor a character to. So uh, although you can't see me, let's say, for example, a physicalization might be, you know, the rise, the raise of an eyebrow or the tilt of a head or the nudging of a shoulder. And so if you base a character, well, I found that if I base a character off of one core physical trait, then I can use that trait to quickly get into a different character. And for the audience, it's a way for them to identify, oh, they just moved from one thing to another, to another, to another. Cause, uh, for the most part, I was playing male characters about the same age. Uh, many of them were soldiers, so the soldiers might look very similar. So it had to be something where I had to find a distinct trait that I could use to make them unique. And then I can use that to tap in to jump between the characters more easily and more quickly. Wow, that's really cool. So how does one go from the liberal arts and acting and stuff to be a developer? Because that's pretty much seems like two ends of the spectrum. Uh, you know, on the surface, uh, it seems like that, but it, they actually are so, so similar. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you the kind of migration path for myself. So when I was an actor, uh, I went to school. I, I never, I took one technical class in college. Other than that, I, I've taken no software or technical classes um, in higher ed or code schools or anything along those lines. So I would consider myself self-taught. Uh, so, but in school, I studied acting, acting specifically, and I have a degree specifically in theater performance. Um, right when I got out of school, I joined the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is probably one of the top five repertory theater companies in the world. Um, and it's based out of a small town in Southern Oregon called Ashland. If you've never been there, it's a fantastic vacation spot. The shows are absolutely world-class, literally world-class. That's some of the finest uh, finest actors and producers, uh, for any stage and theater outside of even Broadway, uh, arguably even better than that. And so I worked there for a very short period of time. And while I was there, I realized that the profession of acting was something that just was a little, little uncertain for me. I just, while I felt like I could stay, uh, stay a professional actor, I just didn't love the profession, but I did love the art form. And so I realized like there was, I saw, I met a lot of actors while I was there that just, they were jumping between areas, regions throughout the country every few months. And they were doing, sometimes they were doing shows and playing roles that they wouldn't, they didn't love to play, but they had to play because they had to make some money. And I just, I, that just didn't resonate for me at all. And so I was like, okay, so I need to find a way to solve for the money problem so that I can stay focused so I can do the art form when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Yet again, I don't have to rely on the money side of it. So I could even do shows for smaller theater companies for a few hundred dollars or even free for that matter. Um, And so I started looking for that opportunity and I realized that as a trained actor, uh, a really easy migration was through marketing. Uh, As an actor, your job is to stand in the shoes of another person and try to do your best to empathize. Um, And so as a marketeer, it's very similar. You're trying to think like a customer. You're trying to identify what their pain points are and what their loves are and all that stuff. So I went into creative direction and I worked for um, I was the creative director for a like $200 million coffee company, uh, creating campaigns and ideas and just ways to connect with customers and looking at customer service. And I really wanted to take what I had learned and developed over the you know five years that I was there. And so I started a company that was centered around creative strategy. And while we were doing that, we realized that, you know, the, I mean, tech was already very much a thing. This is like the late 2000s. So, you know, seven, eight years ago. But it was becoming more and more the tie between applications and what you know web apps and mobile apps could do in association to the customer experience. That that connection was being uh, so well drawn that it made a lot of sense. That slowly but surely, as a creative agency, we were getting asked more and more to build web applications, right? Like, how can we take this experience and turn it into something that our customer can interact with? How can we? You know, uh, if we have a brick and mortar store, how can we have another experience, a digital experience that can augment that? And so, again, we just started doing it. And slowly but surely, we realized one day that 80 percent of our revenue was coming from web applications. Um, And so we just decided to go all in. And so while that company theoretically or legally speaking still exists, we started a new company called Zeal. 
And we brought on a partner from the San Francisco area that had more experience working with startups. Um, he had come from Pivotal Labs, so he was a pivot at the time. And so he just had some process knowledge and we were able to just sort of build, we kind of took our experience from a branding and marketing perspective and kind of applied that on top of his experience from process and uh, project delivery and software engineering. And then I uh, always had an aptitude towards it. So I taught myself Rails and Ruby and then I took the huge leap. I think it was uh, er, like 2013, maybe 2014. And I was like, I'm going to do the thing that <laughs> that really forces me to learn, and I'm going to give a talk on RSpec. And so I was accepted to give a workshop at RailsConf. And so anyway, so here we are today. So wow. that was the migration <laughs> path. So I would say if there was an association between the two, it's that we're all very much creators. And our job, I think, as software engineers, whether we're building the user interface or we're building the support structure underneath that, the application that's driving that interface is, you know, we have to look at what's what problems and pain points is the work we're doing trying to solve for? And when we kind of tap into that kind of poetry of the work we produce, then being, you know, the, the common, the common uh, association between that and acting or any expressive art form is there. I mean, we're artists. As software engineers, we are absolutely artists. And it's just a different medium. That's all. Cool. Yeah, I definitely like your take on things from that perspective. You know, coming from a... I, I, I think you're a negative guy, to be honest. I think you're a <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. So that's really cool. So you recently gave a talk at the Ruby Dev Summit on rapidly mapping API schemas in Ruby. Can you give us a quick overview for those who, like myself, wasn't able to attend that talk? Yeah, for sure. So uh, this talk was was came out of a, a client project. Um, and more specifically, we were working with what is now Vote.org. Uh, integrating civic data such as representatives and election data into an application so that you could define or so you could so you would know uh, where and how to contact your representatives and or uh, when election cycles were and things along those lines. So we had to we were working to interact with specifically the Google Civic API. And as I'm sort of building this adapter, I'm realizing a couple of kind of key traits uh, about what is common amongst any application development in association with working with a third-party service of some kind. And I realized that, well, and specifically for this project, they had a very hard and fast timeline, right? Elections were coming up, election cycles were coming up. So we had to get this thing out the door really quickly. In addition to that, the, there was a, a feeling that this API might be a little unstable. So we had to build a structure programmatically that would allow for us to you know, get something in place quickly, yet not not so tightly tightly couple ourselves to that implementation. That if something changed in that within that API, that it wouldn't crash all everything that we were trying to do. Um, so we had to take a very iterative approach to that uh, to get there. And so this talk was effectively my process of discovering about like what are these compartmentalized bits and pieces that all play a role in the integration of a third party service and where can, how can we kind of encapsulate and isolate these points of failure and then evolve those bits and pieces over time. So it's, so the idea of rapidly mapping something is really to say, well, uh, the thing that we can control is our application. The thing we can't ultimately control is theirs. So again, how can we build a system, an adapter pattern within our application that's going to communicate with theirs that allows our application to isolate the impact of their changes at the same time as allow our code to adapt to their changes so that when there are issues, when there are changes, when there are updates, we can more quickly address that stuff, if not allow our API, our internal API to just rapidly adjust to it. So is this something like uh, the goal of Zapier and what they're trying to accomplish? Because it sounds very similar to what they provide as a service. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair comparison. Um, this is, yeah, and I would say, you know, we're more looking at it from the sake of, you know, how to think about it in, in Ruby land. So as, you know, if we had to build a custom adapter, what would that look like? Um, so as an example, or, or using the talk as an example and some of the code examples that I use in there is, you know, the first iteration, and I show this a lot in the talk, is it does utilize a lot of meta programming um, where, it says, uh, 
you know, the data that's going to be coming back is effectively these really deep and rich JSON structures. And if we just take those JSON structures and we convert them into Ruby hashes, which is generally the extent of what most engineers will do in their application is they'll just take, take the JSON, turn it into a hash, and then they'll interact with the hash specifically. Uh, that's all fine and dandy. The problem that starts to emerge really, really fast is that now we have baked into our application an understanding about the data structure itself that is very specific and unique. This is a hash. This is, and it's pretty easy to assume as far as our application is concerned that this is more specifically a JSON structure that we've converted into a hash. Um, and the, the realization I made from a development standpoint was uh, what would be better is that is that our application is interacting with objects, representation objects that, and the representation objects are the kind of intermediary between uh, just straight object interaction and this hash structure that sits on the other end of it. So our so as far as our application is concerned, similar to how Active Record is within Rails, is our application doesn't know queries, it, or it doesn't know SQL queries, it doesn't know SQL structure. That's not something that it's going to concern itself with. But what it does know is that there is an object called user or project or election or representative, and I know that I can request of this object this data and it's going to return that back to me what happens in that representation is it's going to know oh well what you're what you're when you make a request for this type of data i know on the other end of that what this what this api is returning back to me and what that structure is going to look like right so it's it's simple separation of concerns so zapier is doing a lot of that as well and what what we're saying what in the talk is just saying well if you were to implement a similar pattern what might that look like inside your app so on these classes that you're creating, then they're, I'm trying to picture what this looks like. Um, you have simple Ruby objects that I assume have a, some sort of HTTP connection out where you can where you can uh, pull the data in, cache the data, query the data, um, and all that stuff. Is is that kind of how it works? Yeah. So there's three different uh, there's three different major components. So and I'll just kind of walk through them. So the first is the connection object and the connection as I kind of illustrate is effectively the lock and key. So uh, I'll start from maybe where the problem space emerges is what I've seen multiple times is that it's very easy to bake all of the understanding about what this third party service, how to interact with this third party service. It's easy to bake all of that into our application code itself. And so to separate those things out, there's effectively three parts. The first is the connection object. And this is the thing that understands that this, this is specifically a third party service and that I need to make things like get and post requests to the service with these payloads of data, and I'm going to get this type of data back, okay? Then there's a client object, and the client object's in intention is to know that there is a connection, there's a lock and key that I need to utilize to be able to access some data on the other end, and also I know that there is types of data such as elections, representatives, that also is going to be requested of this external service. So I have a connection object that's the lock and key, I've got a client object that is this intermediary between, okay, you want this type of data structure, I know how to ask that of this uh, and utilize this connection to get it. And then the third is the representations themselves. And the representations are simply this translation adapter between uh, the JSON structure that comes back from making the request for this data and what the application uh, is gonna ask for of a represent, given representation, like an election or a representative, something like that. So our application is gonna say, give me all of the representatives in this area. And the representation is gonna say, okay, well, I'm gonna ask the client to give me that data. The client's gonna say, oh, I know, I'm gonna use this connection to be able to get that data for you, return it and, and migrate it down the chain. So is the majority of your custom code, I mean, I, I imagine you've uh, modules, these definition libraries that you have, um, they all use the same connection, the same type of client, right? So I assume that the majority, if if you brought on a different API, you'd really only have to create that third part. So where things would swap out. So uh, this and this came up. So we went from utilizing the Google Civic API to using I can't remember the API, and it, I th I think it was like the I think it was Sunset or Sunrise. I think is what it was. 
Um, but similar to, you know, think about it similar to like you might be swapping out a database from MySQL to Postgres or to Oracle, what have you, right, is mm -hmm. um, similar to how Active Record and Errol is kind of helping support that kind of a, is that abstraction layer of communication, uh, you're creating effectively that same sort of model. And so when, let's say we wanted to migrate from the Civic API to, you know, this additional uh, API service, what have you then really uh, it's going to change in two areas, but mostly in the first. So the connection now just knows, oh, I'm actually going to call for this data from, from this resource versus the one I was calling from before. And then the client object, uh, which kind of is that sort of translation table between uh, what the representations are asking for and what they need versus what the connection is going to be utilized for in this third-party thing, then the client is going to say, oh, well then, okay, so now I know that when I when you're asking for elections, um, now what's going to happen is I'm going to ask through this connection for this map. I'm going to ask for this data instead. So our application is entirely isolated from all of that change, like it would be uh, if you had a database, you know, if you're swapping out databases um, or database services is... Uh, you know, our application shouldn't have to know how to interact now with Oracle versus Postgres if that's some sort of migration you're making. Um, the hope is, is that your your internal API will never change, but this kind of adaption model that you have out here, that's where all your adjustments are going to take place. Um, I really like I'd those like, kind of approaches. Yeah, go on, Brian. I, I'd like to I'd like to know um, because I know some of the people who listen to this podcast are 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 like yourself and and you're self taught. Um, the the kinds of concepts you're talking about are you know are, are the kinds of concepts that you typically learn in a CS program, you know, adapter pattern and things like that. So how did how did you become aware of those kinds of patterns and and how did you you know how did this solution sort of come to you? Oh uh, well, in two t two ways, uh, listening to podcasts like this, uh, truly. Uh, the more you listen and learn, you're going to start to pick up patterns and practices that help and support, and you're going to know when to apply them where. I mean, how else would you learn that stuff, right? Um, and then a lot, probably majority of it is just trial and error, is realizing that I did, you know, I implemented something that clearly was not maintainable. I don't necessarily know the language to use to define that problem, but I do, I can see what the problem is. And so, again, kind of taking the kind of education from, again, podcasts and things you read online and mm -hmm. other examples, just taking all that and, and kind of evaluating, well, maybe this is a way to solve for that. Um, yeah, it's trial and error. Did, yeah. Did you ever have one of those? Did you ever have one of those moments where, uh, you know, you, you in, instead of like learning uh learning from a podcast or then do you ever have one of those moments where you hear about something on the podcast and go, Hey, that sounds vaguely familiar to, to a thing. I just figured out on my own. There's a name for that. That's a thing. Totally. Cause, cause I've had those, cause I've had those moments. I've had, I've had those moments too. So I was, I'm always interested to hear that because I think there's a lot of people out there who sort of feel like when they don't have, when they don't have sort of that formalized background, um, that they feel like they're inadequate or they're, they're going to run up and against some hurdles. And it's always good to hear, uh, from people like yourself who've, you know, who've, who've solved difficult problems like this. These, you know, these are, these are, these are not trivial problems and they're problems that are really good to solve in this abstract way so that you don't code yourself into a corner. So it's always really good to hear the journey that, that, that brings people there. So, uh, it can lift up people who may have a little bit of imposter syndrome when facing some more difficult problems. Yeah, you make a, a, I totally resonate with <laughs> the feeling of like, oh, that is awesome that I now know what to call that thing. Because it's just as frustrating before that point as well. Uh, and I think this is where there's so much value in working. Like, So at our company, we pair program a lot of the time, probably 70, 80% of the time. We're not super dogmatic about it, but, uh, but we do see huge value in it. And some of that value is actualized in instances like this where you know, I don't know what that's called. I don't know how to identify what that problem would be to most other people, but my pair might, or even better yet, the rest of my team might. So on our team, uh, there's a gentleman named Randy Coleman, who's been, you know, writing software professionally for decades. And so he's got that kind of CS language that I find that oftentimes, not just myself, but members of our team will get from his experience. And so we don't know what to call that. We don't, you know, we don't know how to identify A, B, or C, 
but he can put language to it. Um, and it's not just him. There's obviously many other members of the team that can do exactly the same thing, but that would be an example that correlates to this kind of CS knowledge and being able to identify and label that stuff. Um, actually, one of the most helpful books in my entire software engineering career, uh, career was uh, from, I think, early 2000s, and it was a PHP 5 book uh, where, and it was, I can't even remember, I don't think it was O'Reilly, but it was, it was a big red, a big red thick book. And it was like PHP five. I had that. I had that book. And, and I thought, and they, that was probably one of my first set of introductions to software engineering patterns. Um, and specifically I recall like the observer pattern, like it was the first time I was introduced to this idea of, you know, these objects and collections and the communication between sort of this nesting relationship just had no real concept for that before. And so to be introduced to that was like, oh man, that just blows my mind because I can now see how in real life that would be comparable. But to put that into software now makes more sense, right? Yeah, exactly. I and mean, the problem that I the problem that I always had when I was first learning this stuff was that I had classes where they tried to introduce design patterns as solutions to solving problems. And then, you know, 10 years out of college, you know, I, I ran into some really smart programmers who kind of kept reiterating to me that you know you don't design patterns aren't a recipe for something. They're a response. They're a, a response to a problem that you already have, and and you might arrive at them through some refactoring or something. And so sort of, so changing that outlook on me, I've never been very very good at the theory, but whenever I see a, a very specific situation, uh, and then someone can map up that design pattern to that. Then I go, oh yeah, I can totally see that, and so I, I think it's always, you know, it's it's always easier uh, when you, uh, you know, when someone points out, oh yeah, you're using the X Y Z pattern for this, and you go, oh, of course I am. That makes yeah. total sense now. Yeah, and I've also found uh, what's what's there's there's few things that are as fulfilling as being able to to finally be able to identify what something is that you're looking at. This <laughs> is like, oh, that's what it is. The other thing that's just so fulfilling is being able to uh, identify the holes or the things you don't know about it. So I found this way with NBC. It was a concept I wasn't familiar with. In late 2000, I was new to software development, and I but I decided I was going to write a PHP framework um, to kind of respond to the problem of how to more, more quickly build applications. And I was building this framework. It, it never saw the light of day, but... Right about that time, I was introduced to Rails, and that's when I was introduced to MBC. And I realized that a lot of the patterns I was naturally doing within this PHP framework I was building follow very the kind of MBC principles. And it was an amazing experience. I wouldn't, it, maybe it would be easy to call it validating, but the bigger thing was I was like, oh, and then I could see, oh, well, these are the things that I was doing that are better done this way. Right. As an as a simple example was I had separation with actions and I had the notion of a controller, but I was baking in view logic into the controller. And so now I could see, oh, no, there's separation between that. Oh, I've got this. I've got my objects, my models, my classes that are connecting with my data. I was doing that. I have my, you know, my controller note and this idea of controllers and actions. But now I should really separate out into these templates. And like that, just that process was just so exciting to me um, that I just abandoned ship. I was like, this thing is crap. I'm doing this instead. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got I think a lot of us. I think a lot of us are on that time throughout our own homegrown MVC things. Um, yeah. So you know, you know, this isn't even worth maintaining anymore. This is a much better approach. Um, yeah. And I, I don't regret it one bit. I don't know about you. <laughs> oh, not at all. Yeah, not not one bit. Not one bit. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about Rails is its level of abstraction that it has. You know, when they, I think in Rails four, they introduced the active job where it has all this logic in there to handle doing the types of jobs, but you still need your back-end engine. You can just swap in delay job, sidekick, or whatever else without actually affecting your code or without affecting like the business logic part of your application. It's just going to kind of naturally work, a lot of it through inheritance and other stuff like that. But it sounds like a lot of what you did with your API schema was to create some kind of middleman that you are interacting with from your core application, then that middleman is responsible for handling the outside connections into 
this service object, which then gets used or consumed by your application. And it seems like you've taken a lot of what Rails has done, the concepts of it, and kind of made it applicable here as well. And I think that's really cool. And I love doing those kind of things. It not only makes your code much cleaner, more maintainable, but it's also easier to troubleshoot when something goes wrong. As a developer, you love building things that are fun and that matter. Me too. Do you want to add authentication to yet another app? Do you want to stay updated with all the security issues and patch them? Why not leave it to the experts? Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with either regular username and password, social identity providers like Facebook and Twitter, or enterprise identity providers like Active Directory, Office 365, etc. Or without passwords, with an email login like Slack or phone login like WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Add authentication to your Ruby app or Rails app, Sinatra, and others in less than 10 minutes by writing only a few lines of code. No credit card required. Get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. That's the number zero in Auth0. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Bluetooth, Optimizely, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Try it out at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. Remember, that's the number zero in Auth0. And get back time building core features. Yeah, and that's entirely the argument for doing it. I, yeah, it's, thank you very much because I, I think it's important to note, like I don't feel like I came up with some you know grandiose new way of thinking around this problem. This is taking very well-established models and patterns and just re-implementing it and putting it to use in another way based on really good things that other really talented, smart people have already done and discovered and, and been able to label. Um, but the way you kind of broke that down is entirely the reason why this is, I feel like this is a solution to that problem. And the problem being that it can be, this is an area where it's so easy to create an intertwined mess. Um, and then when something, because you ultimately don't end up with control over this third party thing, that when it changes for any reason, either the service goes down entirely, they change their schema, they remove fields, they change simple things like they change the name of the field, add an S because they want to now pluralize it, like, you know, things like that. Um, when any of that changes, it now puts your entire application in jeopardy. And there was another client of ours that, I mean, I hate to say they they were utilizing a company prior to us and they had quite literally spent a quarter of a million dollars integrating an API that was always in flux. I mean, it was barely alpha. And so they were spending weeks, literally weeks, just make for the most minute adjustments because everything was the, the schema, the logic, all of it was fully baked into the app. And so there was wow. no way to easily decouple or identify where was the problem. And once you'd fix the problem in this spot, it didn't mean that it wouldn't pop up over here too, because it, this, this code just hadn't been called yet. <laughs> so it's wow. breaking here, same problem there. Yeah, yeah we've, we've seen a no, number of times in the industry where some third-party service gets acquired or gets purchased and you have to swap something else out. If you've ever done anything with payment gateways, this is a great example right there, right? So it's it's a, it's your your responsibility as a developer to come up with some way to insulate your application so that you can switch out these third-party services if you need to because you'll probably need to do something because something's going to change. Yeah, and... That's I, I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because that's one of my examples of companies who have done something right, and that's Stripe. I'm very impressed with Stripe's APIs, their versioning, that you can lock your instance or your space to a specific version, and you never have to worry about what Stripe is doing, new features, whatever else, because your application is always going to work. If you want to upgrade your version, they have a sandbox environment, which you can then upgrade and then test out the new code with the new versions to see how things act. But uh, I, I really wish a lot more companies would take kind of their approach on working with APIs and not just assuming, well, we need to make this change. We're just going to make it. We're not versioning it. Everyone has to make this update on this date. This reminds me of a, uh, a gem from long ago, and I don't even know if it's still a thing, called Active Merchant. 
and Active Merchant made it so this was pre-Stripe where you could actually interface with all these different ones, but they had the same type of pattern. And then also more modern is, for example, OmniAuth, same type of thing where you have this core structure and then you have these little micro portions of it that connect to very specific points. But where did you get your inspiration or like, did you reference any libraries to build what you built? No, it was all derived from just trying to solve for the solve the problem and recognizing where the points of failure had come in the past. Like I said, I had a couple of really distinct examples where I was watching somebody as an engineering, as a member of an engineering team, watching the serious pain of this tightly coupled application with all these changes they had no control over and the serious fear that everybody felt around anything that could possibly happen. I mean, everybody was like, I mean, we relied so heavily on, you know, VCR to capture you know, these API return, you know, these API requests. And I, I can't even count how many times uh, we realized that uh, the call or the, the payload that was being returned that we had captured via VCR in the cassette was different. And it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, and, yeah. and, you know, it's easy, it's really easy to complain about that service and say, oh, well, it's their problem. But at the end of the day, no, it isn't. <laughs> like, yeah, at yeah, the right. end of the day, yep. it's ours. <laughs> so yep. we got to solve I, for it. I may have I may say this on, on every time this topic comes up on every podcast, but it doesn't matter who wrote the code. If you use the code in your application, nobody uh, nobody cares that about that. You chose to use it. It is your code now. It is your responsibility. Um, so you know it, uh, that 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 approach. You know this this whole approach of this abstraction stuff. It's it's. Yeah, it's the right thing to do, and it makes it easy to maintain. But it's also a little bit of a level of cover your own butt when it comes to writing software, because you're going to have problems, and you're going to be responsible for fixing them. And and to this day, I got to tell you that the whole the whole thing with like VCR and capturing those results, I've I've been bitten by that so many times too. I always have. Um, I, I I tend to not use those tests. I tend to always hit the damn sandbox because I'm so terrified. My tests run so slowly, but I'm always um, I'm 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 always terrified that things are going to change out from under me. Yeah. So that you bring up a really important point, which is like the dynamic of communication amongst your team. And I have this thought that I kind of keep running through my head, which is uh, that the communication you have amongst your team is actually the first code you'll ever write as a new member of a team, right? That it's not actually about the software itself. Like the first code you're gonna put to use is how we talk about the domain. That's gonna be the first stuff. And so kind of coming up with comment, like, so putting a huge focus in your team on how are we gonna communicate what's going on so that when that code, our communication, our verbal interchange, our you know sharing of this knowledge occurs, that we can have the predict the same sort of predictable result that we expect from our application software itself, the code itself, and so making sure like taking ownership over that is everything. You know, again, we're a consultancy, and so we come and go from companies. Often we might be on a project for three to six months and roll off, but there might already be a software team there, and I would I you know, putting an arbitrary percentage on things, I'd say more than half the time, you know, the the greatest contribution we can make is just, you know, neutralizing and kind of normalizing the language that's used about the domain, simplifying areas that are just needlessly complicated, pull, you know, removing egos from, you know, and, and the over-engineering that's inherent to it to just make it more consumable and easy for new members of the team, whether they're experienced or just new to the team, period. Like that is, that is so much of the work that's essential. And there's a lot of times in a lot of code bases where, you know, that focus has very obviously not been applied where, you know, it's just, it's left to be a later roadblock, you know, and, and I, I don't want to judge yet. I feel like it's really easy for it to be our subtle passive aggressive nature at times to say like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be really smart with this code so that somebody feels the pain when I'm not here. And I think that that's yeah. the stuff as a team that we can mm -hmm. really work through to make sure that, you know, we're actually taking care of our real core job, which is to communicate with one another. I've always, I, I've, when, when I was doing consultant consulting, one of the things that I uncovered is I, 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 I uncovered this that, that a lot where you see this overly complicated code and you go, what was this person thinking? Are they trying to like, you know, 
build in job security into the code base or something. And and what occurred to me is maybe it's not malicious. Maybe it's the fact that they needed a challenge. You know, so they sort of they're they're instead of sort of challenging themselves because they're not really that excited about what it is that they're building. Your your, your point though about uh, about coming in and sort of normalizing the 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 discussion is is it's so important. It's 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 so valid when you, you see you see teams go through this whenever they onboard a new a new team member. You so heads you know you know you're so down in the weeds, so heads down working on the problem, solving the problem. Um, that you know, a lot of those communication things just you, you sort of trust your team in, in a way. And then when someone new comes in, or if a consultant comes in, uh, you have to stop and you have to start explaining things. And, and that that act of explaining things starts to uh, let you see the holes in what you're doing. It's sort of like explaining something to somebody new and then realizing you don't know it as well as you think you did. Totally. So there's a there's a talk that I've given the most out of any talk ever. It's called "What If Shakespeare Wrote Ruby." Uh, you can find it online. And uh, the talk is effectively about this topic, which is the notion of communication being everything. So the abstract effectively goes like this. I realized as a uh, practitioner of Shakespeare and uh, being somebody who studied Shakespeare that I found something wildly fascinating that uh, Shakespeare for you know hundreds of years ago wrote about 850,000 words in his works. Um, of those 850,000 words, 1,700 of them were brand new uses in, of phrases, words, you name it. And there's almost no documentation. So complex fight sequences, songs, new words, new phrases that have never been used before, uh, poetry that had never been expressed the way it had been expressed before, all of that done, all of that complexity was relayed entirely through the language itself. And I thought this was, you know, the topic of documentation and communicating what intentions are in the code and what it's meant to do and expectation was really fascinating to me because I'm like, how the heck did this guy do this so long ago, this poet? Like, how did he do it? And so I tried to really dig into, like, how did he leave clues for you know, the way the emotional state of a character or how did he leave clues around the fact that this is now a fight sequence? How did he leave clues that this was music and what the tempo and rhythm and mood of the music might want to be? Like, how did he do all that? Because if we were to, while we couldn't adapt all of those practices into our code base necessarily, because it's a, it's a radically different medium in a lot of ways, uh, it can maybe give us an opportunity to, you know, pause for a moment and think, well, how could I communicate the intention more clearly in what this method is meaning to do so that when somebody uses it or kind of, you know, works to dig through and live in our code, how can that be relayed without needing, without the necessity of them reading a bunch of explanation? How can we do that? So that's what this talk is about. So I recommend it if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's very interactive. Some of it's easy to I've, I've done it a few times. so You can find very uh, different iterations on it. But it kind of talks about this very specific topic of communication. Yeah, I think that's true in many ways. If your code is so complex, either because you're using too much metaprogramming or because of uh, poorly chosen variable names, then you're going to have to have some kind of documentation to follow it. I would much rather break best practices or, you know, have a larger method, you know, 20 lines or something. But if it's very readable and very understandable, then it's good code. If it's something where a month later I come back to, I have like, I have no freaking idea what I did here, then it's not good code. You know, so I think in a lot of ways, like you're really preaching the truth there that, your code has to be readable. It has to be maintainable. And if it's not, then you're going to have to just have more documentation than you have lines of code. I think yeah. the only exception there is when you're dealing with um, some kind of third-party public API where you have a lot of people from many different backgrounds that are not working with you or that code on a daily basis to have good and adequate documentation. You know, same way for a gym as well. You know, that you want to have good coverage, good documentation on the gym, its usage, how to maintain it or work with its parameters. Yeah, and I might suggest, uh, I think some of the best README files for gems are those that really try to tell a story about its use, right? 
you know, give examples in practice instead of just saying, oh, these, you know, these five methods are available to you and you want to make X requests to these and, you know, it's going to take these arguments and all that stuff. Instead, it's like, no, show me it in practice. Tell me the narrative. Write me the story. Yeah. You know? Write the story, and and humans have been telling stories for you know, thousands of years to each other. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to explain something new. It's the best way to get someone to care about what it is that you're doing. Don't tell me you have written a new gem. Tell me how your new gem solves my problem and makes my pain point go away, and I'm sold. And and I think that goes for products. That goes for for almost everything. And it's such an important such an important point to remember. If you want adoption of your thing, you have to come up with some story to tell that helps people understand why they need it in their lives. Right. And the beauty of it is that like, let's say, you know, if, if you understand the story, if you understand its purpose, then when I need to switch out some of the implementation, you, the probability is you're more likely to stick with me, right? You, we can, it doesn't feel as radical of a change like, oh gosh, uh, I mean, what does that mean? Like, how does that change my narrative? How does that change my use. Instead, it's more like, oh, well, this still continues to be the story. We've changed the story. We've added in this component into our story. So, you know, 95% of this stays the same. This last little bit, you know, has changed. And so you can keep with us. And I think Rails actually has done a really phenomenal job as a framework in being really declarative within its API um, that, you know, method names and uses and terminology that's really down to earth by and large um, and doesn't and is really expressive like uh, some very simple things that i was very blown away with was you know in the early days of validations um, i personally i appreciated the api validates presence of right and so it was kind of like it could read like a sentence it it felt very ruby to me I would find that they changed it. I mean, I, I don't really have a strong opinion, but I have always liked that, you know, keys and hashes of using like with this instead of saying, you know, whatever that object is on the other end so that you can read through it. You can tell a story with it. And I think that for, yeah. especially for newer engineers, it gives you opportunity to like retain that easier um, so that they don't have to keep going, you know, going back to the documentation being like, what was the word that they're meant to use? Like they can kind of yeah. think through that narrative. I'm going to, I'm going to say that they're wrong and it should have always stayed as valid. It's present. So I understand, <laughs> yeah. I understand yeah. why they, I understand why they changed it, but the code base just reads a little easier when you're looking at a new code base, you can totally. figure it out. And I understand why they changed it. And I understand all the rationale behind it. I still think they're wrong, uh, but that's their framework, not mine. So <laughs> yeah, we write code with people. It's for people. It's by people. Like it's, it's it's all of that and it can be easy to forget that sometimes that's okay i mean we can always migrate back towards it for sure <laughs> i can't get over how much you look like louis ck i know i know it's true <laughs> you know, we're like we're bffs we're right just... <laughs> uh you are a fascinating individual it's so fun to meet people who are in our industry that have such unusual paths of getting there and to, and to find somebody as creative minded and as I like you, you've got to be genius because you've got that creative side. That's just so rich. And then you've got that analytical side and be able to actually determine and define design patterns, like out of the blue, like you're, you're probably one of the top five smartest people I've met. Well, <laughs> wow. That's wow. That's incredibly nice of you. Well, thank you very much. I, I'm very humbled by that for sure. Uh, I don't feel that way, <laughs> but <laughs> if that helps at all, I don't. I don't necessarily. You know, I think that uh, I really don't feel that way. I think I, I really like working with new, like junior. Uh, I love working with code schools and people in code schools because I think that every single person has that same capacity to make those discoveries, and I think so much of it boils down to willingness to just take a risk huge leap of faith and grow as we go along. Um, I was just yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine who's the CEO of uh, Learn, which is a code school here in San Diego. And we were talking specifically about imposter syndrome and the feeling that, you know, I'm not enough and I'm not capable enough. And, I, and I'm like, you know, and uh, she specifically, uh, she and I have been talking about the idea of her giving talks because I think she she came from a theater background as well. She's now the CEO of a code school having 
no real experience as a software developer. She's a woman and also had just had a baby and is bringing her her beautiful little girl, three months old, to these classes. I'm just so totally impressed. And she and we're sitting down for lunch just yesterday. And she was like, I really want to give a talk. And I was like, absolutely. And she goes, but I don't know what I'd talk about. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, just tell the story of the last 90 days of your life, because that's that's we all have that uniqueness. We all have that narrative. We all have that story. And it's really easy for us to forget that. And I think that once we take the opportunity to really remember those truths, that we remember that we are unique and valuable and we have rich, we all have a richness in our life that we can contribute to other people with, then the confidence that we need to be able to take more risks and learn more and grow more is available to each and every one of us. And I feel like I am not special in any way, shape or form. I did. I don't have some unique pedigree. I don't have some unique ability. I do think that, um, I do think that I am a privileged person. And I think that is something that needs to be discussed and talked about for sure. Uh, while at the same time as I do believe that in the context of ability, I think every one of us have the same ability and the capacity to achieve greatness in whatever it is we want to help solve for. And so just letting ourselves go and just having that confidence and that richness to just go, go learn, go try, go fail, uh, because you won't often. <laughs> like, failure is not actually very common. Uh, it's only really a failure if you just choose not to grow from it. I really do believe that. And I think most people can recognize that too. So just go try stuff out, break things. It's okay. They can always be fixed later. It's all right. <laughs> Build your poetry of work. Build your po absolutely. Build your poetry of work. Totally. Whatever it is, whether it's in software engineering or otherwise, just yeah. Build your poetry of work. I love that. I, you yeah. said it. I wrote it down right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Those are your words, not mine, buddy. <laughs> uh, well, okay, cool. <laughs> That's great. Was there anything else you want to talk about, Adam? You know, not particularly. Um, okay. I, I'll leave the less. I'll, I'll leave the rest for uh, my picks because I think that uh, the only other things I'd want to talk about are the things that I would pick as being really exciting and fun and cool. So cool. Uh, that have been helpful for me. So I'll say that. Great. Well, if people want to get in contact with you or follow you, where do they go? Uh, the easiest is you can find me on Twitter. Uh, Adam Cuppy. Uh, my name, as far as I know, isn't shared by anyone else in the world. So A-D-A-M-C-U-P-P-Y. You can also find me on GitHub at A Cuppy. So not Adam Cuppy, but A Cuppy. And then, of course, uh, I work for Coding Zeal, which is a software consultancy. And so you can find a lot of stuff there as well. Uh, you can find a little profile of me there. And then if you want to see other talks that I've done, uh, most of them have been posted on Comp Freaks and or YouTube. So you can do a search on YouTube for my name and a lot of those will pop up as well. Well, great. It's been an awesome talk. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Shall we move on to picks? This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. All right. So, Ryan, do you have any picks? Uh, I just... Uh have one pick and it's it's a it's a plug for a site called officehours.io where you can uh you can find uh you can find people who are willing to donate their donate 10 minutes of their time to help you out with something um and i wanted to uh, a plug that i'm doing an experiment i'm actually putting myself out there for uh, uh about a half an hour a week and um if you know if anybody listening wants to pick my brain about something or um or whatnot, I'm I'm happy to do that, but I I find that it's very rewarding to to do this. It's very rewarding to make yourself available and share your knowledge with other people, uh, and the the connections that I've made through OfficeHours.io have been really helpful to me as well. 
Uh, I think uh, it's something that I encourage people to to investigate. Um, you know, either as a, either putting yourself out there as an advisor or joining in the you know, participating in the forums, um, or you know, just uh, taking a uh, taking a few minutes of someone's time uh, and and picking their brain. Um, and I, I've the the big takeaway from this little experiment of doing this for the last couple of months uh, is that I've actually had people that I know. Who 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 could they're the friends of mine who could just ask me questions anytime they want, and I said why 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 are you using the office hour slots for this? And they said because that way I don't feel like I'm intruding. You're you're telling me that you've got this time available, and so that's been a big kind of a big takeaway that oh I guess that is kind of a a, a way of looking at it. So uh, that's something I'm I'm experimenting with, and I I encourage others to do that too. It's a great way to share with the, the community at large. Great, Eric. About two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to go um, share my story and talk to uh, a local code school. Uh, I'm a big fan of code schools. I, I know several people who have been involved in them. Um, this one is unique, I think, to Utah and possibly to the Ruby community because they focus on 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 the on the Rails side and building up um, solid Ruby developers. Um, the company is called Bottega and. I was just super impressed that what they do is they they have a school there, but they have a partner company there that that has uh, that's uh, that does um, client work, and so they actually have the students learn uh, you know on the spot on doing uh, by doing client work. So real real world example stuff. So anyway, I, I know that um, I know that uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the online schools and I, and. and online schools and campus schools, but other the code schools in particular. Um, I'm a fan. I think that we should do everything we can to support them. I think that we should uh, definitely uh, try and and hire and work with the graduates of those schools because um, people can't go to college to to get a Ruby degree or they can't go to college to learn a lot of this stuff. Um, and and these guys are really these guys and girls are really working hard to to teach. Um, Rails and Ruby. So anyway, Bottega.tech, I'm a, I'm a fan of them. Great. And Adam, you say you had a couple of exciting picks for us? I do. I have three, actually. So my first two are book recommendations. The first is The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. I was just turned on to this by uh, one of my best friends. Um, I was not familiar with Stoicism. I don't know if you or any of the listeners are familiar. I was not at all. This is a brand new thing to me. Uh, I thought the Stoics were just really old people that wrote a, wrote a bunch of stuff long time ago. <laughs> like I didn't realize how insightful it was and how uh, how applicable it was even today. So the Daily Stoic is a really cool book. Uh, it's 366 uh, Stoic meditations and thoughts. So it's broken up by days. So like today, October 24th, it's going to have, or even what whenever this is published or whenever you're listening to it, it has that day and has a little excerpt from, you know, Socrates or Marcus Aurelius, and then a small little breakdown of a kind of normalized description of what that might mean. I found it to be super beneficial um, and really helpful. Easy, easy read, great daily sort of stuff. The other one, uh, as a business owner that I found very, very valuable, and I recommend to any business owner, any for-profit company, even, well, any organization for that matter, is a book called Profit First. Um, it's a very basic book that looks at specifically how to think about your organ, your business from an accounting and revenue and and uh, for profit perspective. And simple explanation is that basically instead of profit being the derivative of, you know, the revenue, the money you've brought in and the expenses you've had and then whatever's left is all you get to uh, benefit from. Effectively, what he's suggesting is he suggests that you move your profit into your second pit. So revenue minus whatever profit percentage you think is important to you as your business, the remaining is expenses, and you base your your operations off of whatever you've got left in your expenses. I um, mean, just simply that mind shift as a business owner was huge uh, to be able to help really create a more stable and viable company. So easy read, profit first. Uh, I'll we can. Put that in the show notes if you like too. That's great. And the very last one is uh, actually the, our company's podcast. So the Coding Zeal Interestings podcast. So every day during stand-up for years, our company has a section in our 15-minute stand-up that we call Interestings. And it's articles, things that we've discovered, either Ruby-oriented or just within the tech industry or even outside the tech industry, just totally off-the-wall stuff. 
that our engineering team has found super fascinating and interesting. And for years, we've been posting that and sharing that. And so we started putting it into a newsletter that we got shared that was like, you know, quick and digestible. And one of our engineers had this idea like, well, what if we just talked about one of these articles for 15 minutes or so every single week? That's all it is. No shameless plugs, no none of that. And what we found is it's been really helpful. A lot of people, especially new to the industry, uh, get just an insight for what do a bunch of, you know, senior engineers, uh, junior engineers think about these various topics. So uh, you can find that at podcast.codingzeal.com. And I hope you really dig it. Awesome. And I have one pick and it's a podcast that I run, driftandruby.com. And for the past two years, it's been a free service where you can watch over, there's now over 100 videos. And I just launched a new site with a subscription service and I'm running a early bird promotion until the uh, near the end of November. So if you want to go in there and sign up, uh, it's $15 a month, which after November 25th, it goes up to 19 a month. But it's something where I'll be doing three professional uh, episodes a month, and then you can get a free one on the first week of each month. So check out driftandruby.com for more details. Well, Adam, thank you for coming today. It's been a great, uh, great time talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Right. You're a great guy. All right. Talk to y'all later. See ya. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.